Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Last week and even Sunday, we talked about Paul going into Jerusalem and what that meant to him and what that stirred up. As we saw last week, it produced once again a riot. Paul was trying to be appeasing to the group. He had listened to the elders there in Jerusalem, James and some of the others, who had told him, hey, everyone knows about you, Paul, and they have questions about you. So to appease their conscience, we want you to, to take this vow with these four men and pay for the sacrifices and go to the temple and show yourself as being a support. He did that, but someone recognized him who was from Asia, from the area of Ephesus, where he had come. And that person said, that's the guy, that's the guy, he's the one, you know. And it stirred up a riot. People didn't even know what they were rioting about. They just knew it was that guy, Paul. Someone had said he brought Gentiles into the temple, into the inner court, which was blasphemy. They were to be put to death if that happened. They were allowed to be in the outer court, but not to enter into the temple. And so that didn't happen, but they just made a, an uproar. And so Paul is seized. They started trying to kill him. The Romans saw something going on, so they sent troops down there. They basically rescued Paul out of that environment, had to carry him out of there. As they drag him into the barracks, Paul then goes to the Roman who was in charge, and he spoke to him in Greek, and he said, Hey, can I talk to them? And the guy was blown away. You speak Greek? He goes, Oh, yes. I'm not from any small town. I'm from Tarsus, which was the third most popular city in Rome. And he said, aren't you that Egyptian who was causing trouble? He goes, no, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm from Tarsus. Is it okay if I speak to the crowd? And he talked him into speaking to them. And that's where we pick up here today. Now, think about this. These people just tried to kill you. They were going crazy. What makes you think you can talk sense into them? Have you ever tried to talk to a group of people who are upset about something or even not even a group, just maybe one of your kids or something, you know, when they're upset and you're trying to convey something to them? It's not the easiest thing to do. But for some reason, Paul has this, this undying faith that rises above the situation that he finds himself in that says, I want to speak to them because I've got something to say. Maybe, just maybe, I can win them over. Maybe, just maybe, I can change their mind. It reminds me of Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And you don't have to turn there. It's just a story where Jonathan and his armor bearer are there. And they're against the Philistines and they're vastly outnumbered. There's only like two swords in the whole army. And King Saul is somewhere and he's just moping with his troops. He's asleep somewhere. And that's usually what happens when you're depressed is you just sleep somewhere and he's just depressed and sleeping. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, you know what, maybe, just maybe, the Lord's going to deliver them into our hands. What is it for God to deliver by few or by many? He can do it. I tell you what, Let's go up to them, and if we go up and show ourselves, which isn't a wise thing to do, 
you know, let's go show ourselves, the two of us, to the whole army. And if they say, hey, come up here, or if they say, you know, we're coming to get you, then we know, okay, we, we better take cover. But if they say, hey, come up here to us, then we know the Lord's delivered them into my hand, our hands. I don't know what kind of reason that is, you know. It doesn't logically follow. Well, what does it make sense for Paul to stand up? Hey, these guys just tried to kill me. Let me talk to them. Let's see if I can talk some reason to them. Maybe, just maybe, God has something to say. And Paul takes every opportunity. He's so focused. He is so bent on pro proclaiming this gospel of grace that every opportunity he has, he takes. What a great thing that is. What a great example that is for us. And so in verse 1, it says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. Do you know who else said those same words? Stephen did. Chapter 7. That's exactly how Stephen started off. We talked about this. I know Sunday we talked about it. Danny mentioned just going back to Jerusalem to present Jesus. And this is where he actually had Stephen martyred. And he's going to mention Stephen's name later on. So no doubt this is in his mind. But what a way to start. What if he's just echoing back? Remember Stephen. Stephen started out the very same way and said these same words. And as he says these things, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. The word defense is apologia. It's where we get our words apologetics. Listen to my testimony, my apologetics, my defense for what I have to say. And what's great is the next things that we see in his reading, his defense is his testimony. Listen to my defense. Here's my defense. It's what God has done in me. And he goes on and he says, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, may say Hebrew in your translation, it's their native tongue, Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now this is once again where we see Paul has just wisdom. He talks to the Roman guard in Greek. The guy says, whoa, you speak Greek? He talks to them in Aramaic. They were probably expecting him to speak in Greek. They were probably expecting him to Talk to them in Greek. This is that guy who's causing trouble, that Greek guy. You know, he's bringing the Greeks into the temple, but he speaks to them in Aramaic, and they go, oh, wait, he's talking in Aramaic. Let's, let's listen to what he has to say. You know, sometimes just speaking the language makes a difference. And it doesn't even have to be the difference between, you know, English and Spanish. It could be just talking in a way, even slang, that people understand. It could be music as a language. You know, dog, you know, whatever it is. You start talking and all of a sudden people are like, what's up, man? Hey, what's happening, bro? Yeah, check it out. Check you down. You know, and all of a sudden you speak the lingo, man. You, you're in with it. You're down with it, dude. You, you've got it. Mary's saying, just stop, Sam. Just stop. <laughs> but it's so true that you can identify people just in the ability to speak a language, perhaps music, perhaps in understanding if you're going to school in literature, things that people are involved with. Speaking a person's language is an important step to getting through to them. Them saying, you're on my plane, you speak the same language that I, I do. When I was 
a lumber salesman and I was selling wood, I would go into some shops and the person didn't, English was his second language. They spoke Spanish. And sure enough, one of the other sp salesmen who spoke Spanish, they'd have an easier time selling wood to him. It's like, why? It's the same wood. I sell wood too. You know, what's wrong? They spoke the language. It just, all of a sudden, there's this camaraderie around them. Hermano, que pasa? <laughs> Madera. You know, that's all, I, that's all I know. But they spoke the language, and all of a sudden, it's like, hey, I've got something together with you. I, I can speak your language. We've got this culture around us. So he speaks their language. They identify with. And, and then, as he goes on, as they're quiet, which is an amazing thing, he says, Paul said, then said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I have persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as also the high priests and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. As Paul begins, he starts giving them something that would connect them to himself. He tells them a little bit history about himself, how he was born in Tarsus, which was a city that was Grecian, but he was brought up in this city, which is Jerusalem. And then he does some name dropping. Under Gamaliel, we saw his name mentioned in chapter 5 when the disciples were going about and he said, let them go. If it's of God, you will find yourself fighting against God. So he seems to be a man who had wisdom, you know, that was going on. I just, what's going on behind me? Uh, and so he uses a name, someone that they would recognize, Gamaliel. Oh, we know. I was brought up in this city under Gamaliel. And then he gives a little bit more information about him. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He was brought up a Pharisee who was a strict legalist when it came to the law, to the Torah. The Pharisees were very, you would say that they were the... Um, the Sadducees would be liberal and the Pharisees would be conservative. The Pharisees were very conservative. I was very conservative in this area of the law, as much as any of you there. The Pharisees we saw were the ones always challenging Jesus with the letter of the law. Well, I was that kind of a guy, as zealous as any of you are out here. Well, he's brought up under Gamaliel. Most of these people weren't. Most of these people who were rioting and trying to kill him didn't have those kind of credentials. Oh, he was brought up here under Gamaliel. He was zealous for the law. Oh, so he's in this Pharisee group. He's part of these people. And he goes on, I, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. And so now he identifies with their zeal to kill him. I know where you're coming from. I persecuted these people. I followed them. 
I had the letters to go to Damascus to find them. I know where you're coming from. Just as you're trying to kill me, I was trying to kill them. I was zealous just like you're zealous. I speak your language. I'm from the place where you're at. I was as zealous as you. I know where you are coming from. I'm identifying with the things that you're doing. I wanted to go to, from Jerusalem to punish them, to find them, to imprison them. And then in verse 6, he tells about what happened. And about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light that had blinded me. And so now he tells his conversion. What happened? How he was on the road to Damascus. And we read about this earlier. And as he's appealing to them, what he's letting them know is, I was right where you were at until God changed me. Until God got a hold of me and changed my direction. I was headed in this direction and now he moved me to another direction. And what's interesting is two things that he says. In verse 8 he asks, who are you Lord? And in verse 10 he says, what shall I do? And really this is what conversion is. is finding out who the Lord is and then asking what he wants of our lives. Who are you Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Well, was Paul persecuting Jesus? Wasn't he persecuting the church? Well, you persecute the body and you're persecuting the head. Jesus takes it personal. When you were persecuting them, you were persecuting me. You know, people say, well, I've never seen Jesus. Well, have you seen his body? That, that would be us. We are to represent Jesus in that way, where Jesus is identified with us so that if you per persecute us, you're persecuting him. He is living through his body. We are to be as he is. So are we in this world. That's what we are to do. That's what we are to represent. And, and so there is this instant identification with the head and the body with who Jesus is and who they, he was persecuting, those who were on what he called the way, those who were following him. I was persecuting them. I was persecuting Jesus. And as he says that, his companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him that was speaking. There's no contradiction with what was said earlier in the conversion. It's really the same thing as you look at his testimony uh, just depends on the translation. It might say, we heard a voice, but it really means they heard a sound, but they didn't distinguish the voice. And so they heard what was going on. And so Paul wasn't alone in this testimony. There were others who were with me when this happened. It wasn't just me saying, you know, I did this. 
as what happens in, in some situations. Joseph Smith, I found these glasses. Well, was anyone there with you, Joseph? Well, no, but trust me on this. And then there was these stones. Has anyone else seen these tablets? Well, no, but trust me on this. You know, they, they were gold and these glasses helped me to interpret them. Who else was there? Well, no one. There was an angel there. Did anyone else see you and the angel? Well, no, until later on I got some guys to say that they verified these things, you know. I mean, you need other people to verify these kinds of things. You don't just say, yeah, you know, I was out in the patio the other day and God appeared to me. And he told you me, told me to have all you guys leave your wallets here before you leave, you know. I was like, wait a second, who is there to hear that, you know. It's like, something's, something's up here, as Pat picks her purse up and puts it in the chair. I'll be keeping this close to me right now. <laughs> there were other people there. It wasn't just Paul talking off of the blue. There were other people that were witness to what happened. There were those who gave me letters to go to Damascus. Uh, the, the high priest knows about this. This is something that you guys can verify. I'm not just making this up off the top of my head. There were people who gave me letters to go. There were people with me on the journey who saw the light. They didn't understand the, the noise that they heard. I heard the voice. It was Jesus. And then I asked him, what should I do? Boy, what, what a great thing to ask. Lord, what shall I do? You've changed my life. Now what do I do? Where do I go from here? I wonder if we ever really get to that next question. A lot of times we'll just, okay, I'm saved. Thank you, Lord. And we don't ask, what do you want me to do? I'll just stay here. I'll be comfortable. But the Lord says, I want you to go into Damascus. And there you'll be told. There will be told to you that have been assigned to you. That he, I'm telling you what you're going to do there. And so he had to be led there to Damascus. And then verse 12, we see someone else comes into the picture. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Now, why would he say that? Why does he throw that in? Well, because of who he's talking to. This guy named Ananias. Who's this Ananias? Oh, you know, because you can tell they're already apprehensive to everything that he's saying. Who is this guy? What's he saying? Who is, what is he about? I don't know. We know earlier in chapter 19, verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most people did not even know why they were there. So all these people are there and he's talking to them. You don't have to do this. <laughs> Most of these people didn't even know why they were there. They were just there, you know, What's going on? Who is this guy? I hear he's, he's bringing Greeks into the temple. Yeah, really? And then he starts talking. So he wants to tell this about Ananias. He was God-fearing. He was highly respected. Try and take away their unease about who he was. And, and once again, we see him trying to appease that riotous act that they're involved in. He's trying to appease them so that they will be less 
offensive. And he tells them, well, he, he was devout, respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me, verse 13, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Now, this is kind of a neat thing because as we look at what happened to Paul, the last thing he saw was Jesus, and now the first thing he sees is one of his disciples. I was seeing Jesus blinded me with who he was, his brilliance. He spoke to me. The next voice I hear and I'm able to see is one of his disciples. I wonder if people see that with us. If they want to see Jesus and they open their eyes and they see us, what do they see? Because Ananias represented Jesus to Paul. Here's your sight back. And I, I saw him. I was able to see him. Then verse 14, he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what, you are, wait, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, baptism was something that the Jews would use when they were proselytizing the Gentiles. In other words, if you were going to be proselytized and come into the Jewish faith, you had to be baptized for a, a ceremonial cleansing. Imagine what that was for Paul and his religious height, his religious precedence where he was, to have to be baptized. Wait a second, I, I, I'm a Pharisee. I, I'm a Jew. No, you need to be baptized for the cleansing of your sin. This is a humble act that he was going to have to be taking because now there, he has to recognize there is an uncleanness, an uncleanliness in me still. My righteousness wasn't enough now I need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And it goes on and it says there, wash away your sins calling on his name. It's identified. It wasn't the baptism that washed away his sins. It was the identifying with who you are and the recognition of calling on his name, Jesus. And so you need to be baptized in his name. You're not clean. You see, all your religious works, they, they didn't do it, Paul. They weren't good enough for you. And what this religious leader had to do was what he would ask those who were being accepted into his religion to do in order to be accepted. You need to be baptized. You need to be cleansed so that you can become like me. Well, now he's having to be baptized so that he can become like Jesus. And we see that so many times our level of spirituality, this is what it means to be holy. This is what it means to be spiritual. And Paul was at the peak of what it meant. But his peak of what it meant wasn't even at the bottom of what it meant to be a Christian. All his righteousness could not master or come up to what it meant to be a Christian. Isaiah says, your righteousness is a filthy rags before the Lord. What can you do 
to gain God's respect. God, look at you and say, okay, you're good enough. Nothing he could do. And so many times we want to just work and work. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? God, are you happy with me now? I, I haven't, you know, smoked a cigarette in, in, well, I don't know how many years, you know, years. And I haven't, haven't had any alcohol and I, and I haven't looked at anything bad. Am I good enough now, God? Am I good enough? You will never be good enough with your works. If you do not have my righteousness on your life, it will never be enough. And Paul was at the height of what it meant to live a ceremonial, righteous life in the eyes of men. Zealous, according to the law, flawless, he said. And it wasn't enough. You need to be baptized. You need to have your sins forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we recognize where it is that our righteousness lies. It's not on how good I am. It's on what Jesus has done and that alone. That's what we depend on. Because we can get caught up into that again and again. Oh, I got to do these things. Oh, if God's going to hear me, I better, you know, drive the speed limit. I've shared this story before. My brother, when... My nephew was being born. He was premature. He was only two pounds, two ounces when he was born. I forget, four months premature or something like that. It was just, and we got a call. We were out in Van Nuys working and we got a call. There was no cell phones back in that day. We got a landline call saying, your wife is in the hospital. She's going into labor. You need to get there right away. And all the way from Van Nuys to Pasadena, I think it was, to Huntington Memorial, my brother was driving 55 miles an hour. And I'm like, what are you doing? Step on it. And, and, and I know what was going in his mind. Perhaps if I drive the speed limit, God will have favor on me and spare my child. I know what he was thinking. And I respect that. But that's not what you do to appease God. Living by the law is not going to make God say, okay. I'll give you favor now. That's not what it's about. And that mentality and that kind of thinking is what Jesus was dealing with when he said, you know, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's not what it's about. There's no way you can please God by how and what you do. And you have to come to that grip some point in your life and say there is nothing in me that is good enough and Paul was at the height of what it meant to be good and he had to be baptized into the faith and so what a humbling thing for him and what a, an incredible thing all the things I've been trying to do my whole life to live this righteous life and I've never been able to do it I am now baptized into the name his name and I'm accepted. And now the righteousness that I wanted is given to me as a gift. Oh, happy day. I'm free. I am free. And he's sharing this with these people who've just been trying to kill him. And as he talks to them, it goes, in verse 17, goes on and he says, When I return to Jerusalem... And was praying at the temple. Now this is some period of time afterwards. Was praying at the temple 
I fell into the trance. Now, now, first of all, what we see is I'm in the Holy Land. I'm in the Holy City. I'm in the Holy Temple worshiping the Holy God. Okay, this is what he's trying to convey to them. I went back to Jerusalem, the Holy City. I'm in the temple, the Holy Temple. I'm worshiping God, the Holy God. And I fell into a trance. And that word trance, I mean, we think of trance and automatically we kind of go, what is that about? The word trance, it's interesting because it's the word where we get the word ecstasy from. And it has to do with, it's the same thing that happened to Peter and Joppa, but it's being brought about by God with a conscience that is holy or, or partially suspended. It's kind of like you're in this place where God has brought you. And it's the word where, or the same idea where we get the word ecstasy. It's ecstasis that he's talking about. And, and so he says, I've been brought into this trance and I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, the Lord said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, imagine you're these people listening. You're there. What's this guy talking about? He's encountered God. I mean, this story is just riveting. It's just grabbing their attention. And I was here at the holy city in the holy temple. And I was praying and I was caught up into this trance. And God said, you got to get out of here. They're not going to believe you. Lord, verse 19, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, there's his name, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing me. them. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, we're going to see their reaction in just a moment. But this is Paul's testimony. This is where God has brought me from and where I went to. You want to know how I got here today? This is how it took place. I was persecuting those who were on the way. I was a Pharisee. I was as zealous as any of you brought up under Gamaliel. I encountered the Lord. Others were there. They saw this encounter. My eyes were blinded by his brilliance. Ananias came and spoke to me and I was able to see him. I was baptized and I was sent by him. And as I came to this city, went to the holy temple, God spoke to me and said, you need to leave because they're going to persecute you. And I argued with him. Lord, why would they do that? I can identify with them. I was going from synagogue to synagogue. I saw the blood of their martyrs, Stephen. They'll listen to me. The Lord told me, no, you need to go because I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. What would you think the reaction would be? Well, verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul and until he said this, then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. What did he say? 
to cause that kind of response, he said the word Gentiles. Boy, how does that make you all feel here, <laughs> since you're all Gentiles? We see now the, the extent of the prejudice that was taking place. We see how prejudice can blind someone in such a way, to such an extent, as to cause this kind of reaction to take place. Wow. Amazing. Just one word, Gentiles. Just one word. And, and I wonder in our own lives, have there been situations or, or things, maybe it's not a word, maybe it's a, a person, where the thought or mention of that person causes that kind of response to you. Where you just react in a way that's negative. Where you hear this thing and automatically you think and you judge. And who cares about all the other things he said? They just hear this word and that's it. The tragic thing is God had always cared about the Gentiles. Always. Second Chronicles chapter 6. I shared this before where Solomon is dedicating the temple. And he said, Lord, when the, the foreigner comes to this temple and he prays, answer his prayer so that he, the foreigner, will know that there is a God in Israel that hears, that they will see the true and living God. God had always meant to reach out to the foreigner. When Jesus cleared the temple and said, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, that place where they were meeting in was that courtyard that was meant for the nations. It shall be a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus said. Not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, for all nations. God was inclusive, but they became exclusive. We need to be careful that we never become exclusive. Oh, you, you can't come here unless you meet our standards, then you can come into our church. I had watched a video that someone had posted recently about someone who was giving a, a, a message and he was preaching. And the message was great. It was, it was taken from Matthew chapter 7, talking about the narrow gate and the narrow road. But you take a text out of context and it becomes a pretext. And we need to be careful we don't do that because the first part of Matthew 7 is also very important, where, where Jesus talks about knocking, seeking, finding. And that is a part of the whole text of what Matthew 7 is about. And where this guy started just coming down and, and really becoming very exclusive in how you get into heaven, you have to do these certain things and you have to be this certain way, he left out the part where God was trying to include people. And they fit together. God calls us to a righteous living. But everyone's invited everyone. And, and we need to be careful that we don't become 
exclusive where we start judging people just because they don't meet our standard. They don't meet the things that God has for us. In Matthew 7, he starts off, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. That's how it starts. And then he goes on to talk about the the narrow road and the narrow gate. Context is real important. Otherwise it becomes a pretext. And what the Jews had done has taken the scriptures and made them a pretext. Take them out of context and they become a pretext to their own doctrine. Because all along God had cared about the foreigner. All along he had cared about those who were outside. But for some reason they became exclusive and said, Gentiles, you're not fit to live. That God would want to reach them? Kill them. It seems extreme to us, but we can get the same mentality ourselves if we're not careful. And so we need to be careful that we're not that way. And so in verse 23 it says, as they were shouting and throwing off their coats and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. In other words, he didn't know what was going on. Why are they doing this? We don't know if he didn't speak Aramaic or even if he did and then they don't... Why, what did he say that caused such problems? Odds are he didn't speak that language. And so he... In verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, um, What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Now, it wasn't even lawful to bind a Roman citizen. And if you were to flog one or, or to scourge one like this, you're in big trouble. Now, if you were just pretending to re be a Roman citizen, if you really weren't, you'd be put to death. So you don't just say, oh, I'm a Roman citizen lightly. Because if they ask someone to find out where you came from, what your citizenship really is, and they find out you weren't, you'd be put to death. So this guy says, we better think about what we're going to do to this guy. He says he's a Roman citizen. Now, Paul, what a, what a guy. He's playing both sides here. You know, first he talks Greek, he pals up with the commander, and then he talks, hey, in Aramaic to these guys, and it's like, now they're going to kill him, now they're going to flog him, and he's just, you know, everything he can do to try and get uh, edge in somewhere. He's using it to his advantage. And now he takes the legal road with the Romans so that they won't beat him. You know, there's nothing wrong with using the law and legal means to accomplish things that are going to be helpful or beneficial for you or for the cause of Christ. In fact, Paul did it here. And we should do that. He doesn't start off this way and assume this, but when it's going to come down to getting beat, hey, can you do this? 
And the guy says, whoa, what's going on? And, and when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander, reported, what are we going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? <laughs> yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. You had to buy your way in. I was born this way, which means Paul's father, or perhaps even grandparents, had earned the right to be citizens at some point. Later on in Rome, to get some more money, they said, if you want to become a Roman citizen, you can buy your way in. This guy wondered, did you pay money to become a citizen? No, I was born one. That means I'm up on you. You had to pay, but no, I, I was born this way. And so, verse 29, those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. There he goes, oh gosh, I, I'm walking on thin ice right now because of what I've done. I, I better be careful. But he's still got to find out what's going on. So the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. In other words, I still don't know what's going on here. And I love this because Paul just kind of pushes his way and then backs up and then pushes his way, kind of feels the situation out, does what he does, and he causes commotion. And so this Roman commander finally says, I got to find out what's going, okay, I'll get the Sanhedrin to come here and have Paul and find out, okay, what's the beef? What's going on between you and this guy? I, I want to know what's happening because I still don't know what's going on. And so that's where we find Paul at this point now is being confronted with them and we're going to see that, like always, they're going to try and kill Paul. They, they, it doesn't seem to end, you know, them trying to put him to death. But, but Paul has a way of staying alive. He has a way of getting through and moving forward because God had called him to go and to preach the gospel. Now, you wonder, from the very beginning, Paul was told that he was going to be sent to the Gentiles, but he always keeps going to back to the Jerusalem and to his own kindred. And you kind of wonder, why? Didn't God tell you you're supposed to go there? Why do you keep coming back to your kindred? You keep going to the synagogues. They keep trying to kill you. Why, why do you do this? And we know in Romans that he said he had such a love for his brethren that he would give his salvation for them. I would give my own soul that they might come to know Christ and to be accepted in the faith. And I, I can't help but think it's just, I have to. I have to tell them. I can't not explain to them. I have to tell them. And so Paul is driven by love to continue telling these people about what happened to him. And might we be motivated in that same way and just dealing with people in this same way? I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday as far as our defense being our testimony. 
But I want to encourage you, as Paul came here to Jerusalem this time and gave his defense of what happened to him, you guys ever feel like, I don't know what to say to people when they ask me about my faith in Christ? You can share your testimony. That's your defense. You have a, a testimony if you believe in Jesus. And your testimony should be one that's alive and growing. It should be active. In other words, you know, one day I said a prayer. Well, that's not much of a testimony. Yeah, it might not be I was blinded by light and God spoke to me audibly, you know, knocked me down and then my blindness, you know, was, and then I was in a trance. I mean, it might not be that kind of a testimony, but what is your testimony? Have any of you shared your testimony and have had it impact somebody? In other words, where someone is listening to the things that you said and they identify with it or it was able to be a, a stepping stone to a conversation about the Lord? Any of you? Yep. Have you found that that's a means of starting a conversation, what God has done in you? Now, have you also had something similar to Paul where maybe you've given your testimony and people get upset at you? Where, you know, I don't care. You know, just because that happened to you doesn't mean it has to happen to me. And they actually feel intimidated by your testimony. Because all of a sudden where I'm at, and, you know, you might say, hey, I was just like you. You know, I maybe you were involved with drugs or you were with that same lifestyle that they were living. Hey, I lived that way, but this is what God did to me. And now you've just rained on their parade. You know, now you've just kind of said, well, you're just saying then where I'm at isn't good enough because you're somewhere else. Because that's what Paul was doing. I was baptized in the name of Jesus. I, I found a life that is better than. And it's challenging sometimes. And we can't be afraid that when those things happen, we say, oh no, you know, my, I better back off. Paul still shared that faith with them. And even though they opposed him, it was the truth. And we can't change people's reactions. It's not our job. We just declare the truth and leave those things for them. Are there any things in these verses that stand out to you guys or things that you would want to add to just as we're closing here? Something that speaks to you or that you identify with that maybe you've experienced or that really, maybe something that you really enjoyed from this chapter? Well, let's pray and we'll close. Father, what a, a dynamic person Paul was. And I, I get so excited reading about him and I'm so intrigued with how he did things. And Father, it is such a good example for us to just think about. And it does make us wonder what, what else we can do to reach people, how we can be effective and how we can be more dynamic and, and more bold for you. Uh, I pray that it would be an inspiration for us, Lord, that we would not be content just to, to be, quote, saved 
Lord, but we would want that change to, to affect us, that we wouldn't only ask who you are, but we would ask, what do you want us to do? Lord, you've saved us for a reason that's bigger than ourselves. May we step into that. May we recognize that and may we lay claim to that in our lives, Lord, and the things that you have for us. Thank you again for how you speak to us and how you prompt us to go forward, Lord. May you prompt us here to just live lives holy for you. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name.